This week, we're going to look at the mission of God in Jesus. So last week was the mission of God in the Old Testament. Today, the mission of God in Jesus. And then next week, we'll look at the mission of God in the church. And Trace really did a phenomenal job last week giving a survey of the Old Testament and looking at the covenants and how the covenants unfold in the storyline of Scripture. And this week, we're going to look at the mission of God in the person and work of Jesus. So before we do that, I want to review or talk about uh, four concepts that came up last week, um, but I want to pay attention to them again uh, today because we only have four weeks, so a little review won't hurt. Uh, So as we think about the mission of God, I want to keep in mind a few things, and the first of these is uh, the tension of universality and particularity. So God's mission, God's plan is universal in scope, but the way that plan unfolds or the way it's worked out is through particular people. So God desires to bless the nations. That's universal, but the means by which God is going to accomplish that is going to come through an elect people, so a, a chosen nation, Israel, particularity. And that's a healthy tension. So these two ideas are not in conflict with one another. And, and that's evident in the covenants in the Old Testament. So, for example, God's covenant with creation or God's covenant with Adam. Adam was a particular man, uh, but he is acting as humanity's representative head. So that's universality. Or we would think of uh, God's covenant with Abraham. God says, in you, that's particularity, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So there's universality, intention. And so as God's mission unfolds through the Old Testament, that particularity gets narrower and narrower. And that process is called election. So don't freak out about that word. (laughs) Uh, that's just, in a, in a grand sense, that's what's happening. God is electing, he's narrowing down uh, the people through which he's going to accomplish his mission. So for us, it's almost uh, midterms, and, and, or it's almost primary season after the midterms. And so we can think about how primaries work in our context. So initially, there's a big pool of people, and they're vying to be their party's candidate, and there's this narrowing effect. Um, So we hold elections to narrow down the field. Or think about um, universality and particularity with representative government. So Jerry Moran is one of our senators, and he is a particular man, but he is, or he ought to be, uh, representing his constituents. So he's acting on behalf of Everyone, so that's universality and particularity. And so the, the narrowing effect is this process called God's election. But again, in the Old Testament, his election is universal in scope, and uh, God's election is different than ours. He's a monarch. <laughs> it's not a democratic process. But he is a good king, and he's just. So we'll see how this mission of God 
narrows down all the way to the mission of the son. So God elects to bless Abraham's seed, his offspring, and then God would choose an elect nation, Israel, who would then desire this earthly king who would faithfully instruct the people in Torah. And then Jesus is the promised, or the fulfillment of the promised king. He is the faithful Israelite. He's the faithful and loyal covenant partner who fulfills the covenant where the others failed because of their sinfulness. And so God elects this particular people, Israel, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And when God chooses Israel, it's not an outright rejection of the other nations, uh, but it's actually the means through which God is going to draw the nations to himself. And, of course, when we think of that, we might say, well, why? (laughs) Why did God do it that way? It's dizzying to think about. But that leads us to the, the climax in Romans, Romans chapter 11, where Paul says the gospel is good news to the Jew first, then to the Gentiles. And so he uses this metaphor of an olive tree, and Israel is the original root, and the Gentiles were this wild branch that are grafted into the original root. And the purpose of the grafting of the Gentiles in was that in some mysterious way, it was designed to make the Jews jealous so that God would save them. And Paul is trying to work this all out, and he can only conclude by saying, Oh, the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. So that's my word of encouragement to you as you think through this narrowing effect in the Old Testament and God's election is this idea of universality and particularity. Uh, we, don't know, we don't have to understand how something works to know that it works. I was reminded of what Terry said a couple weeks ago with prayer. You know, we don't have to know or understand how it all works, uh, but we do know that it works. So why does God do it this way? Well, we'd be wise to say with Paul, oh, the depth of, and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So the second concept to understand the mission of God uh, is centripetal and centrifugal. And that's ideas closely related to universality and particularity. So you're about to get a, a physics lesson from a theologian, which is very dangerous. But uh, centripetal is drawing toward the center. So you can think of a roller coaster has both forces at work. It's basically, it's the push and pull. So centripetal is this moving toward the center, and then centrifugal is moving away from the center. So that's the push. And in the Old Testament, uh, centripetal is the drawing of the nations toward Israel. So you can think of like a magnet. God is using Israel to draw the nations to himself. And Trace mentioned Ruth last week. So Ruth is this example of a a non-Israelite who was drawn in, and she was able to say, where you go, I will go, where you lodge, I will lodge, and your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. And in a broad sense, you don't really see the centrifugal mission, the outward 
thrust until you get to the New Testament. And that's not because people in the Old Testament were closed-minded, but at Jesus' ascension, he tells them that uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon them to empower them with his continued presence and mission. And he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So I know that map is kind of small to read, but you can look at the geography, and it's this centrifugal, this outward-directed movement. And so the church gathers to scatter. So that's, that's not a hard and, and, and fast rule in the Old Testament. I was going to show you another image if you don't like the map. Uh, but you, these uh, uh, concentric circles, this outward expanding vision um, that really begins in the New Testament. So, as I mentioned, that's not a hard and fast rule in the Old Testament, so there are examples of outward movement in the Old Testament. Uh, Jonah is sent to go preach repentance. Um, Elijah is sent to minister to the widow of Zarephath, and Jesus actually alludes to that story to make the point that God has a history of blessing non-Israelite peoples. Um, But in general, you can think of the Old Testament, the mission of God is narrowing down and then culminates in Jesus and then it begins to expand outward. So you see the dynamics of universality, particularity, and then centripetal and centrifugal forces at work. So here's a diagram Uh, It's helpful for me. It's pretty simple. But as we think about the mission of God in Jesus, everything is culminating in him. So Paul says in Romans, Jesus is the goal of the law. He's the end of the law. So everything is pointing forward to him. God's mission narrows and focuses all the way to prepare to the incarnation and the cross at a singular point. And then as Jesus defeats sin and death on the cross by his resurrection, then he begins to inaugurate his new creation. And God's mission then expands outward and globally. Uh, The third concept that came up last week was uh, covenants. So as we think about the mission of God in Jesus, we need to think about how the covenants in the Old Testament are all fulfilled in Jesus and in the new creation. So I'm not going to do a repeat of what Trace did. If you weren't here last week, you can listen to that. Uh, But what I want to do is help us think through how the covenants are interrelated. So how do we understand and put the covenants together? And there's a great book on this um, called Kingdom Through Covenant. Um, it's, a very, it's a big book, <laughs> and they have uh, an abridged version, which, which it's kind of confusing online. Kingdom Through Covenant, and then the abridged version is like a very similar title. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. Um, so that might be of interest to you. But this, um, Stephen Wellham, one of my professors, and then Peter Gentry is co-author, Uh, really wrote the standard book on how do we understand God's mission 
through the covenants? How do they all interrelate and connect to each other? And they argue that uh, the covenants really are the backbone to God's redemptive plan. So they provide the structure to help us understand how God accomplishes his mission. And their view, you know, when you write a book, you have to name something new. <laughs> so their view is called progressive covenantalism. Don't freak out. Progressive can be a dangerous word, perhaps. But <laughs> what they mean by, by that is uh, in the sense of unfolding. Uh, so God's plan is unfolded progressively through covenants over time, all of which are brought to their fulfillment in Jesus. So here's a, a concise definition of their view. So progressive covenantalism is the view that the Bible presents a plurality of covenants that progressively reveal our triune God's one redemptive plan for his one people, which reaches its fulfillment and terminus in Christ and the new creation. Or they flip it around and say it the other way. God's one eternal plan unfolds in history through a plurality of interrelated covenants, starting with Adam and creation and culminating in Christ and the New Testament. So um, a simple way to think about this is to think about uh, Russian nesting dolls. So there's some Star Wars Russian nesting dolls for you. <laughs> the covenants are interrelated. They all depend on each other, and they unfold one out of the other. Uh, or, you know, if you like Inception, you can think of that. So uh, dream within a dream, covenant within a covenant. So each covenant is significant, but equally significant is what comes before and after it, and then how together all the covenants form this integrated whole. So you can think about the covenants organically. And just to review, these are the major covenants in the Old Testament narrative. So you have God's covenant with creation, God's covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant at Sinai, God's covenant with David, and then the promise of the new covenant. So again, which Trace did such a good job of last week, the Old Testament is not just this disjointed uh, set of morality tales, but it's, it's a unified narrative, and the covenants are the structure of that unified narrative. And the reason I'm spending so much time just reviewing this idea of covenants is as we look at the mission of God in Jesus, we have to see how that's a unified plan from start to finish. So it's not disjointed. All of Scripture is God-breathed, Old and New Testament. And our doctrine of Scripture starts with our doctrine of God. So what we believe about the Scriptures starts with what we know about God. So God is the triune, sovereign creator of the universe. And then so as you look at God's written word, knowing who God is, you should expect to see an overall unity and coherence to God's word. And so there is diversity in God's word. There's different literary genres, different human authors written at different periods of time. 
but ultimately there's one single divine author, and that's God, and all of Scripture is God-breathed. And then God's Word, God's Word written, records God's mighty acts in history, which include the covenants, uh, but that was progressively revealed over time. So the Bible didn't just fall out of the sky as, it, as we have it today. It was progressively revealed over time. And so you see how God's unified plan unfolds through the covenants to find their fulfillment in Jesus. And then the last concept we'll talk about before jumping in to the mission of God in Jesus is Trinitarian mission. So last week I opened up walking us through the book of Ephesians and Ephesians chapter 1 and seeing how the mission of God starts with God. And so we have to think about, well, who is God? God exists as Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So how does, how does thinking about God as a Trinity help us think about his activity in the world? So even thinking about the mission of God or the mission of God the Son, that's Trinitarian language. And so it's important for us to think about how the mission of God flows out of who God is. It flows out of God's nature. So J.D. Payne, here's what he says. He says, mission began in the heart of God, flows from his nature. And then I love this quote. He says, mission began with God, is sustained by God, and will culminate with God. Mission is not an activity developed by the church. Rather, the church participates in God's mission. Mission belongs to him. So mission is God's idea, and it it flows out of who he is. And so we can think of God's mission starting when he creates creation. God creates out of nothing. Prior to this, he existed eternally as the living triune God. But his, his vision, his will to create, was because his heart has always desired to commune and fellowship with his creation. He's always desired to see the earth filled with people who live in fellowship with him. Not because he needs that, but out of his love for his creation. And so we don't hear much about Trinitarian mission, so that can be kind of foreign to us, but this is uh, language that comes from the Bible itself. So we can think of uh, John 3.16. We all know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. So the son was sent from the father. And then Jesus says the same thing later in John. He said, as the father has sent me, so I am sending you. So the son is sent from the father. That implies this idea of Trinitarian mission. So, Uh, I'm going to do some brief Trinitarian Theology 101, and hang with me. 
but this is important. So a succinct definition of the Trinity, God is three in one. And there's a visual for you. You can study that uh, later, all the details of it. Um, but it's helpful if, if you're more of a visual person. But God is three in one. He's one God in three persons. Um, the philosophical language is God is one in essence, three persons. And uh, two important concepts as we think about the Trinity are ad intra and ad extra. So ad intra refers to who God is in himself. So God is the self-sustaining God, his character, his attributes, his nature, uh, the intra-Trinitarian relationships between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's who God is in himself. He is always self-existing as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, sometimes theologians call this the imminent trinity or the ontological trinity. And then ad extra refers to God's works, so God's activity. So they'll refer to this as God's economic trinity. Um, it's not two separate trinities, but it's just who God is in himself and then God's action in the world. And so mission, Trinitarian mission, would refer to the sending of the Son from the Father and then the Holy Spirit being sent from the Father and the Son. So that's, that's the idea of Trinitarian mission. So the mission of God uh, in Jesus, when we talk about the mission of the Son, we don't mean that uh, the Son began to exist at the time of his incarnation. That's an ancient heresy known as Arianism, and is the view that the Son was a created being. Uh, he, he says there was a time when the Son was not. Uh, but Orthodox theology has said, no, the Son has always been. He was eternal, eternally existent as the Son. So uh, God existed eternally as the triune God, the Son uh, eternally existed, but he, um, out of God's will to create and save us, he begins his mission to send the Son in time. And so it's a, it's a new action of God, but it's not a change in who God is. And so the important thing for us to think about this is the Trinity is our foundation for missions. And the, the mission of the Son and the Spirit reflect the unity and diversity that exists in the Godhead. Uh, just in the same way as we look at the covenants, the plurality of covenants, but it's all one unified redemptive plan. So there's unity and diversity. And so the mission of God has as its foundation and starting point uh, God's Trinitarian nature. And so the goal with bringing that whole discussion up about the Trinity is not to be confusing because um, really the Trinity is a beautiful mystery and I don't pretend to understand it, but that's what theology is, uh, faith-seeking understanding. 
Um, but I believe it, and I think it's important for thinking about uh, God's mission. So now we can jump into the mission of God in Jesus proper. So a one-word summary for thinking about the mission of God in Jesus is fulfillment. Jesus is the one who fulfills all of God's promises in the Old Testament. So all of the covenants find their fulfillment in Jesus and the new creation. And that's what's meant by Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians when he says, all of the promises of God find their yes in him. All of the promises of God find their fulfillment in Christ. So, uh, we can take the Gospel of John as our starting point for thinking about the mission of God in Jesus. And you see in the first chapter of John, you see the Trinitarian mission of the Son unfold in the beginning of John's Gospel. So John uh, is the most literary, he's the most poetic out of the Gospels, and here's how he begins his gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything made that was made. And this, of course, echoes Genesis chapter 1. So, in the beginning was the Word. That's designed to be an echo of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so already in the first few verses of John, you see that uh, John is interpreting Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenants. And this should take our mind to uh, Genesis and God's covenant with creation and his image bearers in the garden. And what happens in the garden? Mankind is plunged into a state of sin, but there, even in the garden, you have God's gracious gospel proclamation. So Genesis 3.15, the first gospel proclamation, God says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So one theologian says that this demonstrates that somebody out of the human race itself, the woman's offspring, although fatally wounded himself in the conflict, would destroy the serpent. That's Satan. And so here in the beginning of John's gospel, he's taking us back to Genesis. He's priming us to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of all that's come before him. So in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So there you have that Trinitarian relationship, the Father and Son and their eternal relation. And this, of course, is talking about Jesus, the the Word who became flesh, uh, verse 14. And so in the very first verses, you have Trinitarian operations. The Son existed eternally as the Father. The Word was with God. The Word was God. One essence, three persons. And then verse 14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. And that refers to 
the incarnation of Jesus. And as I read earlier, John 3.16, the Son was sent into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. And so the Son, in, in his first advent, his first arrival, did not come to execute God's final judgment at that moment, but rather the Son came to bear God's divine judgment upon himself. And then as we turn to the Gospel of Luke, we see more fulfillment. So we can think of the Annunciation uh, and the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary, Luke chapter 1. The angel Gabriel says, He will be great and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give the throne of his father David. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So even in the angel's appearance to Mary, you have the announcement of how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament covenants. Because there you have reference to Jesus fulfilling the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89. And so Jesus is the promised king from David's line who will lead this eternal kingdom. And then Mary asks in wonder, how can this be, for I'm a virgin? And the angel responds, and he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so we can think of the fulfillment language continuing. Uh, You might think of just as the Spirit of God hovered over the waters in Genesis as God begins his work of creation, the Spirit now overshadows Mary with the power of the Most High as she conceives. And the, the Greek word for overshadow, it's really interesting. It translates to the same Hebrew word, that refers to God's, uh, the glory cloud in the Old Testament of God's presence settling down on the camp. And so you have this idea of just as in the past, you have God's glory breaking into human history, settling on Mary as she carries the God-man who is himself the tabernacle, the true temple of God, He is God with us, Emmanuel. And then as Luke continues, we see how Jesus himself helps see us and help us uh, understand how the mission of the Son is fulfilled through the Old Testament scriptures. So the best example of this is in Luke chapter 24 uh, on the road to Emmaus. So I love this story. There's uh, two downtrodden disciples who are discouraged. Jesus appears to them and he uh, prevents them from recognizing him. And uh, he's like, tell me why you're sad. And they look at him like he's crazy. Do you live under a rock? Don't you know what's happened? And they tell him about how they had hoped Jesus was the promised Messiah. and, uh, And then he was crucified. And then Jesus in this rebuke from a stranger, he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then just a little later in the same chapter, Jesus says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so, I mean, that's a staggering claim that Jesus makes. And, and the Bible Jesus would have used, of course, is the Old Testament scriptures. And so he's saying everything written in the Torah, the prophets, the Psalms, Jesus understood as being written about him. And so that's what theologians mean when they say that the Bible is Christocentric. The Bible is all about Jesus. It centers around him. Um, Martin Luther uh, translated the Bible in German in 1545, and he wrote an introduction to the Old Testament, and he compares the Old Testament to swaddling claws Uh, wrapped around Jesus. It's a beautiful picture, but he says, simple and little are the swaddling claws, but dear is the treasure Christ that lies in them. So the Old Testament, Jesus is wrapped up in the Psalms and the prophets. And and we find other passages in scripture that are similar. John chapter 1, 17 through 18 Jesus says, for the law was given through Moses. Excuse me, not Jesus, John says, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And I love that last phrase, he has made him known. Uh, You could translate that phrase as he has interpreted him because the, the word there is actually where we get our word exegesis. So it, it means Jesus exegeted God. So exegesis is an important principle for interpreting the Bible, and it just means you draw meaning out from the text instead of imposing or reading your view into the text. So we want our preaching and teaching to be exegetical from the text. And so Jesus is the supreme exegete. He has interpreted God. He has exegeted God. Um, Luke 24 demonstrates that. Or think about the Sermon on the Mount. So there Jesus is also depicted as a greater Moses. And he is exegeting. He's showing how the law, he's showing the true intent and meaning of the law. So Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And so he is the the chief interpreter of scripture. Another remarkable passage, uh, John chapter five, Jesus is speaking to a group of religious leaders and Pharisees. And he says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, so the signs and miracles that Jesus is doing, the very works that he is doing bear witness about him that the Father sent him. 
And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you don't believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. And then a few verses later, he says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? I love the Gospel of John. (laughs) But you could go on and on and on. Uh, But as you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, you find this theme of fulfillment. And here's a key point about fulfillment. Fulfillment is the link of continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, fulfillment is not replacement. So, Matthew 5, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So, the Old Testament and the covenants all anticipate Jesus. So, again, the one-word summary for thinking about the mission of God and Jesus is this idea of fulfillment. So then we can look at the life and work of Jesus. So um, looking at his ministry. And uh, I'm, I'm not doing this chronologically. I'm just doing this thematically. But last week we ended uh, looking at the 400 years of prophetic silence before Jesus' arrival. So Israel was awaiting a a promised Messiah, a promised son who would deliver their people. And, you know, it's, um, I think their expectations were realistic if we were in their shoes. It's easy from our perspective to to think, how could they get it so wrong (laughs) with their uh, misaligned expectations? But if we were in their shoes, Uh, perhaps we might not be that far from them. Uh, They were awaiting a military ruler who would overthrow Roman oppression, but as God's unified plan of redemption unfolds, the identity of the Messiah becomes more and more defined. They're waiting for this Messiah who would inaugurate God's saving rule and reign, and Uh, That's all God's kingdom is. God's kingdom is his saving rule and his reign. So this Messiah would usher in the new covenant age. And Jesus is the one who inaugurates that kingdom because in Jesus we have final and full forgiveness of sins. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. Jesus is better. The law, the Old Testament priestly sacrificial system, were all temporary institutions. They were temporary stopgap measures anticipating the full, final, once and for all sacrifice of Jesus in his substitutionary death. So uh, Jesus was not only our substitute bearing our sin and dying in our place, but Jesus' whole life was substitutionary with his active obedience And so he obeys the Father as our representative. 
And so the particular, in the particular man, Jesus, Jesus acts as the representative for all those who would place faith in him, and then his righteousness is imputed or given to us. And so because of Jesus' resurrection, the new creation, the age of the Spirit has burst in as all of, the, all of God's promises are fulfilled in him. And so at, in the life of Jesus, one of the main themes is the ingathering of the nations. So the, there's the centripetal and centrifugal forces. So from the very beginning of Jesus' life, we see him drawing the nations to himself. So you read the birth narratives of Jesus in the Gospels. Matthew, in particular, emphasizes the wise men or the magi from the east. So those are Gentile nations coming uh, to worship God the Son incarnate, lying in a manger. And uh, the angels appear to the hillbilly shepherds in Luke chapter 2. And one of the angels, he says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. It's not just a message of hope for the Jews alone. Jesus is presented at the temple, as was Jewish, Jewish custom. A man named Simeon, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, holds the Christ child And he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So all throughout Jesus' ministry, as you trace his movement through the Gospels, he has all these interactions with Gentile peoples, often to the chagrin of Jewish people. And Jesus will often rebuke Israel Because he says, you should be the ones who see things rightly. You should be the ones with eyes to see the Messiah. But they reject him, and it's often the Gentiles who are commended for their great faith. So an example of this is uh, Jesus teaching in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. So Jesus goes to the synagogue, and he starts reading and preaching from the scroll of Isaiah. So here again is Jesus exegeting the prophets. And he reads from Isaiah and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls the scroll back up and he takes his seat. So that's... Jesus' form of a mic drop, a first century mic drop. <laughs> and, and he says, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Drops the scroll. And then he predicts that they're not going to accept him as the Messiah. And he says, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth, I tell you, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up. Three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. 
And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. I think that is so interesting. (laughs) They were enraged with Jesus. He's speaking truth to them, and it fills them with rage. And they become so enraged that they, they raise up and they drove him out of town and brought him off to the side of a hill to throw him down. And Jesus miraculously slips through their hands. Um, so Jesus tells them, no, you have a history of rejecting prophets. God has historically shown his blessing on the Gentiles as well. And so all throughout Luke's gospel, you have that theme of Israel's rejection and the Gentile reception. And it's, it's fascinating to see their obstinate rejection of him. Um, now, even though Jesus came as a light for the Gentiles, he spends the majority of his time and the majority of his ministry among Jews. So Jesus himself in Matthew 15, he says, For I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so there's some debate in the scholarship that says, you know, did Jesus have a mission to the Gentiles? Some say no. Uh, Some say yes. I think it's a form of both. (laughs) He spends the majority of his time with the Jews, um, but the nature of his ministry is, is, is drawing the Gentiles in. And so again, Jesus' choice to minister to the Jewish people were not, it, it wasn't an exclusion of the surrounding nations, uh, but it's what Paul is getting at when he says the good news is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So in terms of God's redemptive historical plan, salvation has come to the Jews and by extension, all nations. And then as we look at the the passion of Jesus, so the last uh, week of Jesus' life, many fulfillment patterns uh, reach their climax with the passion and death of Jesus. So Jesus' death and resurrection fulfills the promise of the new covenant and, and he receives, in him we receive full and final forgiveness of sin. So no more faulty mediators who are not actually able to take away sin. And so in the cross and death of Jesus, God brings a message of hope through judgment that salvation is for those who believe in Jesus And then as a result, there would be this multi-ethnic multitude who would join in the chorus of salvation. And then Jesus interprets his own death as inaugurating and fulfilling the new covenant promises uh, on the night where the Jews were gathered to celebrate Passover, uh, the great feast of remembrance of God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And so as you recall, the, the blood was spread over, over the doorposts in Egypt to spare the Israelite firstborn sons from the angel of death. 
And then Israel traveled through the parted Red Sea to Sinai, which Peter says corresponds to baptism, plunging through the watery grave. So Jesus' blood is all finding its fulfillment. It's representing a better blood than the lamb slaughtered at Passover. Jesus is the Passover lamb sacrificed for us. He's the resurrected priest king who inaugurates the new creation. His kingdom, his saving rule and reign is now here, but it's not yet here in fullness. And so now we look forward to the day, the great marriage supper of the Lamb, when we'll celebrate at table in the heavenly banquet. And so that's what's going on when we practice communion. Uh, that's what we're doing. We're, we're looking back at Jesus' sacrifice, but we're also looking forward to uh, our anticipation of that great wedding reception, the great feast of the Lamb, marriage supper of the Lamb. So that's where we'll stop today. Uh, next week, we'll look at the mission of God in the church. Um, but before I conclude, I just have some implications for this. Um, what do we do with all of this? And one of the implications is just understanding that God has one unified plan of redemption. Um, to speak plainly, it's Jesus was never plan B. God had one universal plan of redemption that unfolds progressively over time and it reaches its fulfillment in Christ. That was always the goal. Uh, and that has implications for how we read and understand the Bible. So what are the dangers of separating the Old Testament and New Testament? And uh, it's that question of continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament is difficult. <laughs> how do we know, uh, you know what's fulfilled in Christ and what isn't? Uh, those are questions that we wrestle with, but there's a great danger in functionally separating the Old Testament off completely. So it's helpful for me to think about um, fulfillment. As I said, fulfillment is not rejection. So even though the Old Testament law um, is fulfilled in Christ, um, it, it doesn't mean that that's suddenly not Scripture. It's still Scripture. So then we have to think through these hermeneutical issues or questions of what applies to us today, what doesn't, but there's a great danger in separating them. Um, the Bible is Christocentric, so it's all about Jesus. And so real practically, <laughs> if it's all about Jesus, then I want to pattern my life after Jesus. And then the implications of this for evangelism um, God has, through Jesus, opened it up so that all people can get in on God's covenant promises. So God's initial covenant promises that were given to Abraham, um, all peoples, not just Jews from, from that line, 
can be included in God's covenant promises. So that has great implications for evangelism. So um, that's where we'll end. Um, you're dismissed. You can, you can leave. As Trace did last time, I can stick around for any questions that you might have. Um,